0: Well, as James comes to speak, we're going to have our Bible reading. So if you have a Bible, if you want to get that and turn to First Thessalonians chapter 1. Uh, if you don't have a Bible with you, there should be a hardback black one on the P-rack in front of you. And in that Bible, we are on page 1187. eight seven. First Thessalonians 1, 4 to 10. Paul writes these words. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you, For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere, so that we need not say anything. For they say themselves report, for they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and the true God, and to wait for His Son from heaven, whom He raised from the dead, Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come.
1: Guess what I forgot this morning? Shoes. <laughs> I was really, really pleased with myself when I walked out the door. When it's a baptism, never forget your towel. I looked in the bag. I haven't got my, my towel. I'm really organized. But now I'm in these this morning. So don't normally wear them. But if we can get by that, that's okay. <laughs> Great. Okay. Will you join us this morning in our uh, second part in our Sunday morning teaching series in the book of 1 Thessalonians. Last week we saw how Paul celebrates the goodness and grace of God in the lives of those in the church of Thessalonica. But this week what he's going to do is kind of shift gear in his logic and he's going to recognize it seems as though he anticipates that they are under a pressure and that there is the danger that they would lose sight of God's grace when they're under that pressure. So here's the thing, he retells them the story of God's grace. I want to pray one more time and ask for God's help as we open his word and understand it and apply it to our lives. So let's pray once more. Lord, we want to thank you for your word. We thank you that it's living and active. We want to hear from you. We want to be different because we have encountered your words. We've heard your voice speak into our lives. So change us. Make us more captivated with Jesus. And in so doing, make us like him. We're praying in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Hey, last week we started off with an English sporting hero. Uh, David Beckham didn't we and I'm sorry to say we're going to do something a little bit similar this week and I'm going to introduce you to perhaps a lesser known English sporting hero. Now I know sometimes talking about sports switches people off immediately. I don't, want to, I don't want to talk about this but you'll forgive me. I could talk about sports a lot more than I do but I restrain myself so afford me this little space please. I want to introduce you to this guy. Some of you are going to recognize him, some of you he's new. His name is Clive Woodward. And he is most notably known for being the coach of the England rugby team who led us to World Club, Cup glory in 2003. He's a, he's a pretty wonderful guy. We, we, I love him. I think he's fantastic. Now, now, when he joined the England coaching scene, he kind of redefined how coaching was done. And so he came in with his sports psychologists and scientists and brought them in and introduced different philosophies for how they should be thinking, the England rugby team should be thinking as they went through their game. And, and, and one thing he introduced which which was really significant, was a philosophy that he called teacup, or thinking clearly under pressure. And so the whole idea was that he would use these sports psychologists and scientists to work individually with the players, and then as a whole as a team, so that when they found themselves in the pressurized moments in the games, where you you know when you're under pressure, you know in those games perhaps when they're under pressure, they forget to do what they had always trained to do because the pressure had caused them to lose sight and they weren't thinking clearly. So he would try and chain-train them and get them to a place so that when they were under pressure, they could think clearly. And so that whole idea behind Teacup was that in those pressurized moments, in the games that they were playing, and particularly in the World Cup, they could think clearly. Well, it turned out this philosophy worked. Because England progressed through the stages of the World Cup in 2003, and then the final was to be played against Australia. And the great thing about it, it was in Australia's back garden in Sydney, and it was tense all the way through the game. But this is where his philosophy of teacup came to the the fore. End of time, the scores were level. Had to add a bit more time on to decide who would win the World Cup. And with that, the tension just rose. The need for clarity of thought began to rise. The pressure just went to a whole new level. And just a few seconds away from the end, England prepared themselves to pass the ball out to their superstar kicker, Johnny Wilkinson. And then the rest is history. I'll give you some commentary here. So Matt Dawson, tackled, but he lays the ball out perfectly placed. Look at that. He's going to pass it back to Martin Johnson. He's the captain. One more phase here. He gets taken down. He's got to present the ball, goes to to Matt Dawson. He throws it to Johnny Wilkinson, takes a few steps back, ready for the kick. Three points, England. And that, that's World Cup glory right there. That's World Cup glory. And we ended up winning the World Cup. But, but that's the effect of the philosophy of teacup. Thinking clearly under pressure. Now, why, does, why would Clive Woodward, and indeed any coach, ever think that that would be a necessary philosophy? Because it stands to reason that when we're under pressure, it's very difficult to think clearly. We, we know that to be true in our own lives, not just on the rugby field. <laughs> it's really hard When we're under pressure in our lives to think clearly and to remember what we have always stood upon and what we've always known. When life gets difficult, when our knees begin to shake and our backs begin to break, it's very difficult under the weight of the things that life seems to throw at us and the pressure we sometimes find ourselves under. It is really difficult in those moments to think clearly under pressure. Maybe you've been there, maybe you are there. Maybe you know those moments in life. Maybe it's a financial pressure. And it's been such a strain on you for so long that you kind of got to the place where I'm struggling to see what matters. I'm struggling to see God's grace. I still feel so ground down and so fed up. I can't really see through this. So Sometimes it's health. Sometimes health can be such a burden It grinds us down to a place, I'm under so much pressure, I'm struggling to see God's grace right now. And following Jesus suddenly has got really, really difficult. We find ourselves under pressure with, with relationship tensions, that can grind us down. We can feel the weight of that, can't we? What about a rubbish season at work when nothing seems to be going right? We feel that pressure. Our knees begin to shake. It feels heavy, and in those moments, it's hard to think clearly and stand upon what we've always known. It's hard to see God's grace sometimes in those places. Now this is what Paul recognizes with the Thessalonians. He recognizes that they are in a pressurized place. He recognizes that they are feeling the pressure. But he also recognizes the danger that they could lose sight of God's grace. And so what he does is he wants to remind them about God's grace. He retells them the story of God's grace. Now, now let's do a little bit of a reminder, just to kind of situate ourselves again, very briefly, about what Thessalonians, how this all works, the historical context, and what's it about. So, so remember, Paul's on his second missionary journey. You find that in the middle of the book of Acts, and so Paul pieces together this team made up of him, Silas, and Timothy. And the whole idea is that they're going to go around this kind of northeastern quarter of the Mediterranean world in the Roman Empire, and they're going to tell people about the good news of Jesus Christ. They don't go around with good advice, a good option, a good addition to your life, a nice appendage to everything that, 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 that you do. No, they're saying there is good news that transforms everything. There is a good news that the Savior has come. His name is Jesus Christ. He's the Lord. He's the King of all. And he has come to change the world and the lives of people through the forgiveness of sins and the resurrection that he achieved and the new life on offer for us. That kind of good news to the Middle Eastern world and to every single person in this room this morning. That's the good news that they're proclaiming. So go around the world telling people about Jesus and planting churches. And so what happens in the cities he visits, people come to know Jesus and a church starts. So what they end up doing is they end up going through Greece because of a Macedonian vision. And Philippi, it's a productive, it's a bruising visit. But it turns out quite well in the end. Then they go to Thessalonica. Now, remember in Thessalonica, they tell people about Jesus, people respond, and they receive this wonderful, world-changing, life-changing news about Jesus, and a church is formed there. But what Paul does over and over again in his life is is his mission is to go to as many places as possible telling people about Jesus. He, He doesn't seem to see his mission as, oh, just stay in one place for the rest of my life, what he does is he heads for those cultural epicenters of the first century Roman world, tells the people about Jesus there. A church starts, and then it kind of emanates from these cultural centers. And so what he does is spends a short time in each place. Now, he doesn't leave them on their own. He writes to them. He revisits them. He makes sure that they are looked after. But that's what he does. So what happens in Thessalonica is, is they don't stay very long, this team, and they move on, and they follow down to Berea, to Athens, and then to Corinth but they have to leave by night. Now, we read this at the end of, uh, in the middle of Acts chapter 17, and the people of the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. That's what Paul was saying. And, and when they had taken money as security from Jason, that's who Paul and his team were staying with, and the rest they let them go. The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea, and when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. Now, if you have a look at Thessalonians right here, it seems apparent... That Paul is responding to some kind of accusation that has been made. Seems to be what's going on here. And it seems as like the accusation that has been made against Paul is that he is a false apostle and therefore his message is false. So he's been discredited. Now he might have they might have been that that accusation might have been leveled at Paul because they had to leave by night and they didn't stay around very long. So the accusation might have been. Hey, when things got really testing in this city, those guys went and left. We we don't know where the accusation is coming from, but he seems to be responding to that. So if you see the beginning of chapter 2 in the first few verses, you'll see Paul defending his ministry. Can you see? I'm not a fake. My ministry is genuine. I'm not about myself. I'm about Jesus. But but then jump back again to verses 4 down to verse 10. Paul seems to be responding to some kind of an accusation that was made about the fact that, hey, this message isn't even real. This message he brought you, he's scarpered, he's gone. He's a false apostle, therefore his message of grace is false. And this is what Paul seems to be responding to in verse 4 down to verse 10 of chapter 1. So you can see the pressure that they're under. It's the hostility for following Jesus. They are following Jesus in a context that doesn't want to hear about him. And then there seems to be some kind of an accusation that's made. So Paul sees that they're under pressure. And he sees the need for them to think clearly under pressure and not lose sight of God's grace. Because he sees it. In this pressurized place, it would be easy to lose sight of God's grace. Maybe we know that's true in our lives. But what does Paul say? What what does he say to them in this pressurized place? What does he remind them of? What does he retell them of? Well, We're going to split it up into three parts this morning. And it, it maps out really, really well here. Verses 4 and 5, he tells them about God's grace to them. Verses 6 and 7, he tells them about God's grace in them. That he's transformed them. And then 8, 9, and 10, grace from them. That God's used them for his purposes in this world. So what do we do when we face those times of pressure... And we're at risk of losing sight of God's grace. Well, we're going to find some answers here. Let's dive in again to verse 4 and verse 5. I'll read it right here. "For, For we know, brothers, your translation might rightly say brothers and sisters. For we know, brothers and sisters, loved by God, that he has chosen you. Because our gospel came to you, not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. Now now notice what Paul does right off the bat. He changes gear from this celebration of the good and he dives in to this reminding and this retelling of the story of God's love for the Thessalonian believers. So recognizing the pressure that they're under, what's the first pit stop for Paul? Well, it's to remind them about God's love. And and he says right there in verse 5, How he knows this is true. Because he says, Hey, we came to you with the word, and then it was in power and in the Holy Spirit, and it brought about conviction. They might be thinking, Well, how are we supposed to understand that? What does that mean? Well, think about it. They came, Paul, Silas, Timothy, this team came into Thessalonica with the words, with the message of the good news of Jesus Christ that things are radically different in history now. And it's for everyone, anybody who will come there. It's for anyone. And so he comes in with this news, that's, that's the word, and then it says the power. Where does the power come from? It comes from the Holy Spirit. Now, now remember, when we studied the Holy Spirit, one of the things we said was key to understand about the Holy Spirit, that his number one ministry is to shine a light on Jesus Christ. So When you read through the Gospels, you see the Holy Spirit is the one who empowers the ministry of Jesus. We read through the New Testament, you'll find the Holy Spirit is the one who, who indwells believers and gives them eyes to see who Jesus is. The Holy Spirit opens the eyes of our hearts and our minds to be able to understand who Jesus is. But then what does he say that results in? It results in a conviction. It results in a resolve. It results in this rooted uh, realization that Jesus really is who he says he is. So the word came in power for sure because the Holy Spirit was at work and that resulted in a conviction. But jump back to verse 4. What is this conviction? What is he trying to get them to see? Two key words there. You are loved and you are chosen. You are loved. And you are chosen. Now, this is a stabilizing truth for this church. For them to know, and for them to see, and for them to be reminded of the truth that they are loved by God and chosen by Him. Now, think about this. Paul locates an assurance for these Christians in the love of God. But it's a love of God that has chosen them. Now, I don't think Paul wants this church to get into a giant theological debate about the doctrine of election and predestination. Though that might be comforting for them for sure, and it is in times of trial. That's a comforting truth to stand on. But that's not what he wants. He wants them to be reminded in their pressure and spellbound by the beauty, the mind-blowing fact that their creator, their God, loves them so much that he sent his son into the world to forgive them and set them free and give them a new hope. He wants them to see that. But where he locates the assurance, think about this, where he locates that assurance within them of God's love for them is not in how they're doing. Did you notice that? He doesn't he go in and say, look, you know God loves you because today you're feeling full of faith. Oh, he doesn't say that. He doesn't say, you know God loves you because you've been really good the last couple of weeks. Where does he locate their assurance? He locates their assurance in the fact that God's heart is set upon them. Think about it. The assurance for the Christian is not based upon whether or not our hearts are set upon him on any given day. The basis for a Christian's assurance is grounded on the fact that God's heart is set upon us. Think about that. Isn't that a transforming truth for us to know? Look, if if we went around saying God's love for us is based upon however strong in our faith we feel on that day, our faith and our assurance of God's love for us will ebb and flow all the time. We can go into one meeting thinking God loves us. Bad meeting, oh no, I'm feeling, no, I'm feeling rubbish right now. How does God really, where, where is he right now? We ebb and flow, I ebb and flow. If I'm to ground my understanding of God's love for me on how I'm doing, it's not going to be fun for me. I'm going to find no assurance. But if I'm, if I'm in a place where I say, look, God's love for me is grounded upon his love and that his heart is set upon me in the person of Jesus, I have a security. I have assurance, I have a stability, an unshakability that I can't find anywhere else. Maybe that's true in your life too. That you find yourself grounding your assurance on how you're doing and you feel shaky, shakable. But if our assurance is grounded on his love, but that's exactly what Paul is doing. Assurance is grounded, what? God's love, he's chosen you. And in their pressure that they're in, what does he do? He reminds them of the fact that God loves them. That in Jesus Christ, God has set his heart upon us. And that's a spell... Finding truth for us. So the first point grace to them, that God loves them. This, this, this utterly changes our life when we get it. This it utterly changes our lives when, when we decide to open our hands and receive this truth. Now I often say it to you, I know because I know it's true in my own life too. That our biggest struggle in our Christian lives is not necessarily our discipline. But that could probably use some work. I speak for myself there. And I think our biggest struggle in our Christian lives isn't, isn't necessarily our focus and our devotion and our lack of distraction and busyness. Yes, that's an issue. Yes, we need to work on it. But I think our biggest struggle and our biggest issue in our Christian life, our biggest barrier is that we struggle to believe that there is indeed a God, our creator who loves us, that has a love so expansive so deep and so wide and so high and reaches so far into our lives. That's what we struggle to believe. If only we could open our hands and begin to receive that truth that God loves us because we know when it does. When we begin to receive that, experience it and know it. It has a stabilizing effect on our lives. And what does Paul want for the Thessalonians under pressure? He wants them to know that assurance. He wants that stability in the pressure to know that. That, that we we're always fighting against things going on in our lives and things that happened in our lives in order to receive that. Some, some of us have been told over and over and over again that we are not of worth, that we're not really valuable, and that we're not really, we can't really be loved. I mean, some people grow up being told that message either, either really, really clearly or, or implicitly. And and so we can grow up and reach adulthood with the mindset that says, I don't really know that it's possible for someone to fully love me. And so so what we have is closed hands. And so that makes that truth of God's love for us quite a difficult thing to receive. But what we need to do, yes, sometimes it hurts, (laughs) is to open our wounded hands sometimes and to begin to receive God's love for us. And when we begin to stand in that truth, it will have the stabilizing effect that Paul wants to see in the lives of the Thessalonians. But then again, we also live in a world that has a really messed up idea of value and of love of someone. Someone Our world will say to us over and over again, through social media, through our businesses, through normal everyday Western culture, we will get told, you are not valuable, you are not lovable, and you are not worth anyone's time until you can look like that until you have that kind of money until you've reached that kind of achievement or 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 you have that house or you drive that car or you have that kind of relationship network and that kind of a popularity but until you get there you will not be lovable in the eyes of the world but the wonderful freeing truth about this god loves them god's chosen them is that it isn't based on the same things that the world grades us with This is a kind of love that doesn't have those conditions. It's a kind of love that's given freely in Jesus Christ. It's a kind of love that has open arms. It's a kind of love that says anybody may come and receive this kind of forgiveness, this kind of freedom, this kind of a hope. And when we begin to stand and allow that love to wash in and through, like a river through our failures and in our lives, it'll have a stabilizing effect on us we we'll begin to see clearly in the pressure that we face. That's what Paul wants to say to them, doesn't he? You need to know his love. Let's move on to this next bit here, verses uh, verse 6 and 7. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord. Okay, how so? For you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. So it shifts gear from them knowing God's love for them to being able to see that God has actually changed them and transformed them. He's worked in them to the point that other people look at them and say, we want to be like them. He says, right, they became imitators of us and the Lord. How so? Well, in their affliction, they received this good news with joy. But then that led to the place where they were so different and so transformed and shone so brightly that other churches in the surrounding region of Macedonia and Achaia looked at the Thessalonians and said, we want to be like them. We want to be like them. We want to be in a church like that. We want to be Christians like that. And so what Paul does is he reminds them of the fact that God's grace has transformed them to such an extent that it's overflowing. Now, here's the truth. A genuine work of God in our lives always overflows. A genuine work of God's grace in and through us will have an effect on the world around us. And it will always spill over. Let me illustrate, I think, what Paul is saying here. My favorite breakfast at the moment, my favorite breakfast always changes throughout the year. Sometimes it's porridge. But right now, my favorite breakfast is uh, almond butter with honey on seeded bread. And so what i do in the morning, I'll get up and I'll make my coffee, I'll, I'll have like a quarter of my coffee, put the toast in. Now, now what some people do, maybe there's some of you in here, when the toast pops up, you leave it for about five minutes. Bad idea, bad idea. No, it's cold. I need it it piping hot. So as soon as I hear the toaster go, I'm in the kitchen, plate's ready, almond butter's open, honey's at the ready. And so so I'll go in there, put the seeded bread down, and there's all kinds of different seeds in it. It's great. And then put a really thick layer of almond butter on this toast, because it's it's hot toast, it's going to seep in, but I also still need a layer on the top. So I'll put lots of it on, and because the toast is hot, I'll get this kind of sheen on the top of the almond butter. But on top of that, and then zigzag some squirty honey all over the top. Now, now, remember, the toast is hot, so what happens is that honey gets really, really runny. It's almost like water. It creates like a little reservoir in the middle. And if I move it too much, then it's going to spill over the edge. And the first few, ta- first few times I've had this breakfast, I get honey everywhere. I can't stop it. I'm so so I've, I've, I'm, I'm sitting at the table. And it's all over my hands. It's up my arms. How is this happening? It's on the T-shirt that I've just put on. It's all over the table. Now, this week I said to myself, look, I'm fed up with getting messy at breakfast. I'm fed up with having to go back upstairs and change my T-shirt. What I'm going to do is be really careful with this, because I know it's going to go everywhere. So, so I kind of uh, create, made, my, my, made my breakfast and just kind of ate it over the sink. I thought to myself, it's, I've, I've won. I've won. It's not going to go anywhere. I've just had to drink some of the honey off my toast, and I was really pleased with myself. Pick my bag up. I'm ready to go to work. I sit down in the car. I go to turn, look down at my trousers. There's honey on my trousers. How? How on earth does this happen? It just seems to get everywhere. It always seems to overflow and you can't stop it. What's Paul saying about the Thessalonians? Your lives and the transformation of grace in you is always going to overflow and it's overflowed to the people of Macedonia and Achaia and you can't stop it because a genuine work of God's grace will always overflow. But what's he saying to them? You have been transformed to the extent that people around you want to be like you. God's changed them. In their time of pressure, God is, um, Paul is realigning their hearts to see that God has transformed them and God is making them new. Now sometimes this can be really hard in our lives to see, can't it? You know, sometimes we have those seasons in our lives and we say, wow, I really saw how God changed me right there. It was, it was, a, it was a sudden change. It seemed to happen quickly. But to be honest, for most of us, our, our, our growing into the likeness of Jesus takes a long time and continues through our lives and it's really hard to see. But what happens when we can look back after a few years is that we are able to say, hey, my anger's a little bit different. I, I, don't, I don't get upset like I used to. Oh, in that situation, I used to get really stressed out when I'm not so stressed anymore. And hey, my prayer life has changed. I used to be terrified of praying and I never knew what to say. And, and now I'm able to pray for people and with people. Oh, the peace that I always wanted. I'm beginning to experience that a little bit in my life. Oh, the struggles I had with people, how I was either not truthful enough or not loving enough. Actually, um, well, he is changing me. And so that's exactly what Paul is pointing to. Can you see the evidence of God's grace transforming you, making you new? He's changed you. In the times of pressure, when there's the need to think clearly, Paul reminds them how God is transforming them. Let's look at the last three verses here in this last point. Verse 8 onwards. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia. But your faith in God has gone forth everywhere, so that we need not say anything. For they themselves report concerning us that the kind of reception we had among you, and how you turned to God from idols. Remember, idols can't speak. Idols are dead. Idols are pseudo-gods that have no power. What does he say? You turn from idols to serve the living and true God, the one who is alive and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. So you see what Paul is saying there. Not only has God's grace come to you, not only has God's grace worked in you to the point that you can be an example, God's grace has come from you, and therefore people's lives look different because the word of this grace has come through you. Now he talks about this sounding forth. It's the same word used in Greek writing to describe how a trumpet sounds or how a peal of thunder goes out across the land. The the, the gospel has not just transformed you. It's worked in and through you. It's changed you to the point where you are now transforming other people's lives. Other people's lives look different because there's grace in you. People have heard about Jesus because of you. You played a role in the purposes of God in this world and for his kingdom. So what Paul is saying, and he's retelling to them, God has used them. So so let's take a step back and try and connect the dots here. Paul seems to recognize, there's evident there's an accusation, and he sees they're under pressure. That's obvious. And he seems to anticipate this danger. Whether that danger's real or not, Hard to say. But he recognizes the danger that they might lose sight of God's grace. So what does he do when they are in the pressurized place? Answer: He retells them the stories of God's grace. I say that again, because that's really important. What does he do when they're in the pressurized place? He retells them the stories of God's grace in them, God's grace to them, and God's grace from them. So what do we do when we find ourselves in those pressurized places? What do we do when we're in a place where we say following Jesus is really hard right now. The kind of pressure I'm under has ground me down. I'm finding it really difficult to see straight and to see through this fog that has descended on my life. I'm under a kind of pressure that's causing me to not see clearly. What do you do in those times? Answer. You retell the story of God's grace to you. God's grace in you and God's grace from you, and God's grace through you. Now you might be sitting there this morning thinking, well, well, that's good. I mean, I'm, I'm, I see what Paul is saying. I mean, I know what it's like to be under pressure. But when I'm under pressure, do I really need to look back to the past? You know, when I'm under pressure, do I really need to talk about what God has done in me, to me, through me? from? Because I? I want a work of grace today. When I'm under pressure, I want God to show up now when I can't see clearly well i tell you what retelling the stories of god's grace will give you the clarity of the sight that you need today let me illustrate that often in life we take important people around us for granted now that can be at work that can be in family one place it often happens is in marriage and i know how that feels and you know in marriage you can you can be so busy so chaotic so much to do that often you can forget to spend enough time together and you begin ever so slightly just to grow apart a bit and you feel a little bit disconnected. And so obviously there's that need to reconnect there. And one of the best things you can do in that moment, and I love to do it, is to reminisce about the ways in which you fell in love. Reminisce about the ways that you got to know each other. Reminisce about some of the great things you've done together. Hey, do you remember the first time I held your hand? My hand was so sweaty, I thought you were going to think I'm crazy. Oh, do you remember that first text I sent you? I can't believe I said that. I thought you were going to run a mile. Oh, do you remember that first time I told when we were sitting on the bridge and I told you that I liked you, I had no idea what you were going to say. Oh, do you remember that realization I had for the first time that I wanted to spend the rest of my life with you? Oh, do you remember our wedding day? Do you remember that uncle and aunt dancing like crazy? Oh, do you remember the wedding dress that you wore and how the preacher slipped up right there? Do you remember that? Oh, do you remember when we had that weekend away together? Oh, do you remember that significant hard time that we went through and how that grew us closer? Do you remember those things? So what happens when we reminisce about the good things of those relationships? What happens? It will have a galvanizing effect on the relationship. It says, oh. I can't believe i missed this. It gives you a clarity of sight when you feel that disconnection. But that's exactly what Paul is doing there. That this reminding, that this retelling, that this, this story of God's grace to them, in them, and through them would, would have this effect on their faith that just enables them to see in the times of pressure. Well, that's what we need to remember, don't we? In pressurized places, it's easy to lose sight of God's grace. In those times... Retell the stories of God's grace to you, God's grace in you, and God's grace through you. Do that for you. Proclaim those stories. Retell those stories in your own life. Retell the story of God's love for you and how wide and how far the love of God in Jesus Christ goes for you that He loves you and He's chosen you. We tell the stories of God's grace in you and how He's been transforming you in your Christian walk, as messy as it's been. He's at work. And retell the stories of God's grace through you. How in the small and the big ways he's used you. In this church. For the people around you. And then if you see someone else going through that kind of a pressure. Because there will be people. Today. Struggling to see God's grace. If you know them. If they're in your community group. They're on the team you serve with. You're friends with them. Here's what you do. You retell the stories of God's grace to them. Because retelling the stories of God's grace then gives a power and assurance for today and for tomorrow. Retell the stories of God's grace. Because we know in pressure it's easy to lose sight. So we retell those stories. Hey, okay, let's pray together and then we get to sing our last song together. Lord, we want to thank you for your grace. We want to thank you that you have never left us that your faithfulness rings true in our lives even when it's hard to see. We know it's hard to think clearly under pressure. We know it's easy to come to a place where we're saying, you a Christian today. It's hard to follow Jesus when we're losing sight. But Lord, we pray you'd help us to see clearly. Help us to retell the stories of your grace to us. And we're praying in Jesus' name. Amen.